welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfman. And I'm Michael Bayrou. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by Memo Bottle, a slim, premium water bottle designed to conveniently slide into your carrying bag alongside your laptop, books, and other belongings. The Memo Bottle is not shaped like a big, round, bulky bottle. It's shaped like a notebook the size of either A5 or A6 paper. Imagine how convenient that is, and imagine what a miracle it is to drink out of such a thing. To learn more, visit MemoBottle.com. If you listened to our last episode, you might have wondered why we didn't jump right into the debate over the new logo for New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, In case you missed it, a couple of weeks ago while we were celebrating the great Umberto Eco and the late, great Matthias Buchinger, many people were weighing in with their opinions, mostly negative, of the Met's new six-letter wordmark, which was designed by the uh, British-founded design firm Wolf Owens. Uh, The complaining came from high and low sources, professional critics like Justin Davidson and Michael Kimmelman, the designer Kareem Rashid, and even a blogger from GQ who asked uh, his readers if they saw, as he did, two butts, that would be two butts as in uh, hindquarters, in the new Met logo, which is in a sense a kind of echo of the reaction to the Airbnb logo. I won't go into the um, the physical uh, relationship of that logo to what people saw in it, but we talked about it on a previous podcast. Apparently, you have to turn your head to see the negative space of the E's in the Met logo, if indeed they're there at all. Oh, to see see the butts? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so finding... um... I don't know, finding, like, um, I don't know what's happened to America, where, um, you know, um, private parts and genitalia <laughs> have to be invoked, whether, not just in presidential debates, where you expect them, but in design criticism of all things. My God, what have we come to? Um, you know, so, um, at any rate, um, we were uh, uh, thinking about this, and, you know, we have a perfect segue, you know, uh, we're so enthusiastic about that Bookinger show, which is at the Met until April 11th, don't miss it. Um, and, you know, we've talked about logos on this show before, the Apple Watch uh, logo, Airbnb indeed. And, and we've also talked about the, this question of logos being a big public discussion about the problem of what you call, Michael, graphic design criticism as a spectator sport, which was the title of an essay you wrote a few years ago on Design Observer. Uh, But since we're wary of making snap judgments, we didn't want to pile on all the fury. Uh, But I think, actually, you wanted to write about this, and you wanted to write about about this particular question of why the public furor over a logo, didn't you, Michael? Yeah, and in fact, um, uh, after our last podcast, I sat down and wrote something that's been published uh, uh, since then on Design Observer. And it really is the culmination of some personal experience I've had with the subject since I wrote that first essay on design criticism of the spectator sport, and just uh, the continuous and now seemingly inevitable thing that happens when uh, major new logos are unveiled. Um, you know, people are just ready, particularly through the miracle of social media, to jump all over these things. So I think also the fact that, um, I, I think probably we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating that in an age in which visual literacy is thought to be everybody's responsibility, everybody worries about their own brand. This is nowhere more important than Facebook. And we're, we're privileging speed over, over uh, I think, truth to some extent. So what's interesting, it's the most fascinating piece of what you wrote that I thought bears uh, some discussion here is the fact that you, you said that this, this 
the thing was 45 years old, it would be the most beloved logo in New York. And this gets at this idea that, you know, time, the time it takes for something to saturate into public consciousness and become recognizable as a mark. And, and also from the designer's perspective, be something that can actually be developed over time as a system. So it's not just one thing that lives as a static object, but it's scalable, it's it's uh, fungible, it can animate, it can move, and then of course over time, just culturally, it becomes saturated into the public consciousness. It would be really great to be able to go back in you know 45 years and ask Michael Kimmelman how he thinks the Met logo did. I mean, you, you just hit on what I think is something that took me a long time, even as a practicing graphic designer to realize, which is that, um, we design all sorts of different things, and th almost everything we design is meant to deliver its effect immediately. A poster, a book cover, uh, a website, you know, all these things are really meant to. You go to it and you have to kind of like get it, right? The only thing that really we do that doesn't behave quite that way, um, that in fact is kind of predicated on the idea that it works a completely different way is when we design an identity system. The first time I saw the Met logo, I sort of got a preview of it because they were using it selectively before the official launch, which is on March 1st. And I happened to go to, oddly enough, um, a lecture in which um, Ricky Jay, who is the magician and writer and scholar who uncovered uh, uh, all that material about Matthias Bookinger, uh, was being interviewed by, of all people, um, Michael Kimmelman. And uh, they were on stage, and the title slide had tucked in the corner this new configuration, the Met logo, and um, uh, and I'll describe it if you haven't seen it, but it's, it's all over the place. It's uh, what makes it interesting is that it's uh, it's not one of those cool sans serif. Uh, we're bored with trying to be stylish or don't want to compete with the style of the place we're representing. It is not that. It is um, I would say very idiosyncratic. It has multiple ligatures where the uh, H and the E are joined. They share a vertical element. The uh, M and the E share a vertical element, and there are big, kind of almost flamboyant serifs. Uh, some people who um, don't like the logo com compare these serifs to threatening, like, axe blades. Um, you know, um, in, so you have butts and axe blades coexisting in the same simple logo for all its idiosyncrasy. And I have to admit, I thought it looked kind of, like, weird, but I had that intuition that, oh, this thing looks weird at the beginning, and then suddenly you get used to it, and suddenly, every time you see it, you think, oh, the Met. And like the Coca-Cola logo, you don't even have to decode it. You just see this kind of particular configuration, and it just is as ubiquitous in one sphere of uh, cosmopolitan cultural consumption as uh, the Coca-Cola logo is in another admittedly bigger sphere. So I think it's um, it's destined to be, be a really um, effective logo, but I, in my piece, I sort of really got fascinated with, you know, if how do you design something that actually has potential meaning rather than 100% guaranteed, yeah, I get it, yeah, I love it, um, immediate meaning. And it's actually like a really confusing thing that requires, you know, a little bit of humility, a little bit of tolerance for ambiguity, an ability for risk-taking. It's it's really different than, um, like I said, uh, you design a, uh, something like a book cover and, you know, 
you, you know, you may not get it right, but you know what it's supposed to do, and you know. Um, well, and it's like that old uh, that old co- um, commercial for antiperspirant. You only have one chance to make a first impression. I always think that that's what people do with Bookjack. Yeah, they do that with everything, but I think it's you know, the, the, a logo sort of is not going to be someone something you meet once and it has to deliver its, uh, its total effect. It's something that'll be around forever. Well, that's exactly the thing. So I think there's two different things going on here. One is that the logo wants to be this no nonsense, make no mistake. This is the brand. You recognize it. Any questions? I don't think so. This is Coca-Cola or Volkswagen or Apple, right? But then there's this other thing that you are slyly insinuating here that I think I want to pick up on, which is the degree to which brands have loyalty. And loyalty is an emotional response and a deeply human response. The trick is when people feel really emotional about it and people feel emotional about the Met. And, and of course, if you add to that the fact that everybody has a brand, well, the branding of, of one's everyday life makes everyone feel that they are able to weigh in with exactly as much authority as any you know professionally paid critic. Paul Rand has this quote that I, I, I drop a lot, which is that um, you know a good logo has quote the pleasure of recognition and the promise of meaning, and I think um, what we're really talking about there is uh, the inevitable process that happens by which people come to associate the attributes of the thing represented to the symbol that's representing it so and, and that and, at the, and that makes it very difficult at the beginning because you're exactly right people think you know if you love the philadelphia museum of art if someone changes it you think someone changed my logo and they didn't ask my permission and all of a sudden it's different i hate this you know i think at the critical level there's a little bit of um kremlinology happening where people are trying to figure out you know say like whither whither the metropolitan museum of art what does this mean that they've done this you know and some of the more interesting think pieces were sort of um trying to say you know this reflects this other commitment they have to these to this this or that agenda and hence they've done this with the logo um but i do think it's um you know this whole thing where it means x on uh, uh on day one and has the potential to mean x to the thousandth power you know after many years is really it's just fascinated me and i i'd like i remember kind of you know you talk to clients about logos that they really liked and they would say apple and they would say target and they would say nike and you know each one of those logos is you know, um, it's like so completely, you know, in a way blank and open-ended. Uh, you know, the tar- I, I went back and I looked at the uh, account of the design of, of the Target logo, which indeed, you know, they obviously had a Target as their um, insignia for years. And then Unimark came along um, uh, around 1970 and just you know, simplified and cleaned it up and turned it into the symbol that they have today. And, um, you know, and if, if, if any of us kind of unveiled a logo for a store named Target and it was a dot with the circle around it, you know, every, people just would like laugh. They say, how much did you pay for that? Or my three-year-old could have done that. Or, you know, that looks like it was done on, you know, Mac paint or something. You know, they, people would just kind of like unleash a volley of criticism. And and part of what I found fascinating about that is like there's nothing clever about that logo. The logo inherently is not clever. Instead, the logo just is open-ended enough that it's it, it actually provokes creativity. And indeed, you can look at decades of target advertising and promotion and different uses that they've done with that logo to show how much potential it actually ended up having. And people who like that store, you know, 
like everything else about it, including the logo. Likewise, Nike, that simple swoosh done for you know a few hundred dollars by good old Carolyn Davidson for a bunch of guys who didn't want to talk or think about logos too much. Um, you know, that that simple thing, the swoosh, has become associated with this whole world of uh, not even athletic achievement, but human achievement on a higher level. And that's um, that's really the power of branding, and it's also the power of, uh, of doing something that's open-ended and isn't connecting every dot and coloring in every single part of the coloring book for you prematurely, but leaving you to kind of go outside the lines and embellish in your own mind what the thing can mean. Oh, uh, no, I just, I always want to come back to this word that logo, you know, we think that it's a, it's a conceit of graphic design and branding and advertising, but, you know, in philosophy, you know, it's the rational principle that governs and develops the universe. You know, it has it has references in theology. It has a Latin origin. I mean, you know, it, it, there there could be some quite beautiful um, trajectory you could trace about the fact that locals really are everybody's business, and and maybe it's actually a much broader cultural conceit than we've ever, ever given it credit for. What's really kind of cool is they do exactly what 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 we claim they're supposed to do. They're you know. Designers kind of get unnerved when, when the public freaks out when a logo changes, but when we're in a conference with a client, we talk about their their customers making a deep emotional connection with their brand, quote, unquote, unquote, unquote. I actually have a theory that we're like maybe just, we may already be there, but in a few months, clients will sort of be upset if their logo launches and there isn't a strong reaction, even a negative strong reaction to it. They and others may feel that if you launch a logo and no one notices, it's like that tree falling in the forest that no one hears it. And now a word from our sponsor. Support for the observatory comes from Memo Bottle, an environmentally conscious alternative to single-use water bottles. The Memo Bottle is a slim, premium water bottle designed to conveniently slide into your carrying bag alongside your laptop, books, and other belongings. It's shaped like an A5 or A6 notebook, hence its name. Presenters at recent events such as TASTE, Design Observer's Conference on Food and Visual Culture, and the Academy Awards were both fortunate enough to get a Memo Bottle in their gift bag. To learn more, visit MemoBottle.com. Um, I, I love my memo bottle, and I love it because we're not meant to be carrying around cylindrical things. We're meant to be carrying around things that are shaped like books. I think that everything we carry should be shaped like a book, including bottles. And so I applaud Memo Bottle for rectifying this mistake and look forward to other people making their things shaped like books <laughs> as well. I just like books, and I think things should be shaped like books. What can I tell you? The second issue of the Design Observer magazine, uh, the quarterly, is out, and it is beautiful. Um, the theme of the issue is tagging, and the magazine takes that in a lot of different directions. That's right. We looked at everything from a marvelous photographer named John Crispin, who received a New York State Council on the Arts grant to photograph 400 abandoned suitcases at a state hospital in upstate New York. And these things are like little time capsules. And the tagging, in a sense, in these, in these suitcases is 
sort of the reference points of what what mattered to people. People would, would you know show up with suitcases full of, of clothes as they were going to a resort, or they would show up only with books, or they would show up with uh, beautiful packaging of things like Brill cream and brushes and hair ornaments from another era. Uh, we looked at uh, the kind of tagging that takes place in cities, uh, these beautiful marks, tagging as a kind of graffiti, uh, marks on the cement, on the asphalt that tell uh, workers where they're actually going to drill and dig, uh, that become a kind of language all their own. And we looked at emotional tagging, which is literally something in the brain. Our memories are stored in a part of the amygdala where the proteins, uh, uh, amyloid proteins, for example, which is what gets corroded in patients with Alzheimer's, our memories are literally stored and, and uh, created, uh, in a sense, lodged in the mind next to the memories we have. And so I thought that was an interesting thing, that, that emotional tagging was, in fact, a biological thing. Yeah, in, in a way, a lot of what we do, I think, and this goes right up to, you know, very contemporary thinking on... Um, UX on user experience and user interface design is, you know, how do you make something look like what it is? I mean, in fact, how do you tag it so that people know that um, if they click here, they'll get that kind of effect. And if you click in this other place, they'll get a different kind of effect. And, you know, people, a lot of times, I mean, will underestimate how confusing it can be, how, how, how kind of like baffling the world is in a way and some you know i think if you've ever designed a book for instance a lot of that process starts on the first day where you're given a manuscript and you're given um sometimes a mess of visual material and um sometimes the author has it all beautifully organized but sometimes it's not organized in any way at all and one of the things you have to do is sort of figure out you know, if the text is operating on several different levels, how do you help the reader navigate that? And how do you help the reader understand that, you know, this level that they're finding on page seven is going to be picked up again in a different way, but on the same level on page 60, you know? And, and do you think that sometimes uh, uh, designers go a little too far, that this whole notion that a professional designer is meant to create order out of chaos in a world that is pretty chaotic uh, we sometimes are slammed for making decisions that clean up a mess that shouldn't maybe be as cleaned up. Do you think that's true? Yes, absolutely. And I think that um, um, design is inherently kind of a man-made thing, and it's a purposeful thing, and it's about making decisions. And it's actually, you know, this is true. This goes back to an earlier conversation about logo design. It's actually really hard to design something that you know will happen by accident later. I think designers, whether they want to admit it or not, are sort of trained to operate in a command and control mode, right? And so uh, uh, we see mess and we want to instate order. We see confusion, we want clarity. I and mean, these all sound like good things, but um, if you've ever been pleasantly lost in a city you don't know all that well, if you've ever accidentally discovered um, the book on the library shelf, you know, on a, next to the book you were actually looking for, you know that, in fact, learning and life itself is predicated on, uh, you know, on ex things happening by accident. You know, I think a lot of big data uh, enterprises have this almost kind of a utopian uh, 
uh, faith in the idea that if everything could be tagged, if everything could be fully understood, then at last there'd be clarity and all systems would be okay. And, you know, and then... And yet one of the things that goes along with big data is the complexity of big data, right? And so in, and increasingly, these are designers can actually go use design as a kind of sieve through which to take chaos and make it orderly. But there may be something that's lost along the way. There may be things we don't know. There probably is a lot we don't know. And there's always that tendency, and I think this is always a kind of, for me, a great tension in my own education coming of age at a time when my professors had all come out of Black Mountain College and the Bauhaus, that there was a kind of almost fascist tendency to just say, the international style is here to make things clear. This is our language. We share it. It's neutral. It's like Switzerland. Deal with it. Right. And so any kind of like more emotional response to something was harder to achieve because you wanted to actually make, make sure that you stayed on the straight and narrow and delivered on the promise of your, you know, uh, the, the disciples of the Bauhaus who had, who had toiled, you know, and, you know, sort of walked across Russia barefoot to make sure that this happened in, in a way that was not going to cause any trouble for anybody else. So here we are 50 years later, 100 years later, uh, in a new century at a time when digital, the digital nature of everything gives us all access to all kinds of information. And yet, designers are still needed to make complex information clear. And this was brought home to me recently, if I may just switch topics for a second, because I think this is actually quite related. I am working at a place at Yale. In the fall, I was made the artist in residence at a place called the Yale Institute for Network Science. And this is a place that actually looks at network phenomena across disciplines, including engineering, computer science, sociology, economics, biology, physics, medicine, public health, all of these people in all of these fields that are not designed all dealing with graphs and charts and numbers and pictures and needing to make presentations and share their research across disciplines that are not their own. And uh, just last month, I started working with them. Once a month, I run these clinics, these sort of critique clinics where they, they bring all their work. So last time we did posters, uh, this coming week we'll be doing presentations. And these people are unbelievable. They are smart. They are credited with accomplishments that in a million years I wouldn't get to understand, but I can tell you that they're extremely accomplished, extremely dedicated to what they do. And many of them have multiple degrees and multiple things. So for example, and here's the anecdote I, I want to share with you and with our listeners. There's a Japanese physician who's a social epidemiologist who looks at the relationship between the genome and human behaviors from the perspective of evolutionary biology. So I'm doing this presentation where I'm taking apart font by font, line by line, design element by design element, someone else's poster. And he says to me in front of a room of 30 research network scientists, if I made my poster look as good as you just made his poster look, no one will take me seriously in my field. Ah. And mm. I looked at him and I thought, this was wow. a crucible moment, Michael. Wow. This was a great moment. I, I looked at him and I wow. said, that's really interesting. Say more about that. And the whole conversation yeah. became about how does graphic design convey its authority in a world that it knows nothing about? I know nothing about evolutionary biology and network science, and yet I'm here telling him that he should use Helvetica and not use Calibri or whatever, right? I'm telling him, you know, three is better than two, five is better than four, black and white is better than color, all the things that any of us, any of our designer listeners would do. And he says to me, if I make it look too good, I will lose credibility. At the end of the class, I expected him to come up to me and tell me that I was a worthless piece of nonsensical contribution to this very scientific, important Ivy League world. Instead, he said, tell me more about design. I can't get enough of this. This is so interesting to me. When can we meet? Can I share with you my presentation? I want to talk about this. 
Like he wasn't going to let it go. He wasn't lambasting me as the window dresser of his research. He realizes, just as I realized, we need to come to the middle somewhere here. And this to me is really an interesting moment in design because if scientists and biologists recognize the value of visual literacy in terms of communicating beyond the arguably narrow confines of their own discipline at a time when the porous nature of interdisciplinarity is not just at the academy, but all over the world. If he's realizing that, others will realize that. What does that mean for those of us who practice in studios where we see clients on one side of the fence and us on the other side of the fence. I, I mean, I find that really, really fascinating. And that's, which, I mean, on one level, good design, quote unquote, isn't just a universal good in some ways. It really is a conscious choice that you make. Then sometimes someone can feel that choice, you know, makes something less authentic in a way. Isn't that sort of like part of what the story is? It's, you know, I think I, I, I've worked with um, uh, scientists who are doing like posters for academic symposia. And there is kind of like a convention for how those things are meant to look. And I can see if someone had, you know, if, yeah, if, yeah, if someone had one that looked like too much like a Joseph Miller Brockman poster, it would just look, it wouldn't have the necessary kind of like, it would both, it would both look too, too slick and kind of overproduced and also kind of not have, not have that level of like, you know, density that kind of connotes um, rigor, you know? We weren't even going towards that. This is, okay, so this is the thing. We weren't even going towards Joseph Mueller Brockman or Jean Carlou or, or Charest. Like, there was nothing illustrative. There were some diagrams. You know, we were just looking at, okay, don't use five colors, use black and white and one color. Don't use three typefaces, use one typeface and two weights. I was just giving them some basic ideas on how to simplify the nature of their research so that people could, it just is newspaper design, editorial design, basic hierarchical typographic stuff they could find by reading Ellen Lupton, they could find by reading Joseph Mueller Brockman, nothing beautiful. But even that, even that simplification, careful clarity of purpose, intentionality that actually maybe makes it so that you actually read down and not across, maybe a grid, maybe a grid which of course, you know, these people are really good at measuring all kinds of data. Of course they can measure columns, right? Even that thought was, was seen in that initial moment to be too good as to potentially limit the seriousness of purpose with which the, you know, vomit on the page, you'll forgive me. It was like these people, they want to get every single thing they ever did, every single piece of research on the poster at once. And, and so just that argument, just that conversation is, is a conversation that needs to start being, being had in institutions of, of uh, not just universities, but I think to, for those of us who have clients who really want to do better, we can help them do better by not sitting on the other side of the fence and just making things pretty. Um, you know, and this reminds me of another essay that appeared uh, in the last few uh days, which um, touches exactly on that. It's also about kind of logo and identity design. Uh, it's um, by a woman named Lindsay Blant, and it's an analysis of uh, the um, uh, the graphic design that's used uh, by the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Hillary Clinton campaign. The writer um, I, is, uh, I gather, a, um, um, a Bernie Sanders supporter, so the, her Twitter feed would indicate. Um, and the essay is pro-Bernie and uh, uh, anti-Hillary, but I thought she made a really interesting case that touches exactly on what you've been uh, talking about. And, and her thesis basically is, and, you know, and I, some of our listeners may know that I uh, worked with the um, uh, Hillary Clinton campaign in designing uh, the uh, uh, the Hillary H. Arrow logo and the and the, the 
and help them with the guidelines that um, that that kind of by which that system plays out. Uh, and her point was that uh, this was like a emblematic. Uh, point of difference between the two campaigns. Uh, the Hillary campaign works with a, um, you know, uh, a professional graphic designer comes up with a design system, a real design. There are rules about it. They have a really talented design director, Jennifer Kynan, and a big team out in Brooklyn who are really uh, doing all this stuff. Meanwhile, the Bernie people make all their signs by hand, and it's every which way, and it has that nice homespun kind of undesigned, uh, it sort of doesn't go together, and, and like, quote-unquote, looks authentic, unquote-unquote, and that reflects the authenticity of the uh, and the grassroots nature of the Sanders uh, uh, campaign and its supporters versus the uh, command and control top-down kind of corporate nature of Clinton. It is really, if you were looking for a story to mirror exactly this incredible, uh, I think, dissatisfaction and distrust of Wall Street and, and Washington business as usual, and for those who actually are opposed to Clinton for being too close to that kind of history of a political uh, dynasty, this is exactly it. He's the grassroots politician. And she she goes on at great length to talk about the fact that you and your team and the nature of Pentagram and the nature of corporate design responsibility is to actually make things look very clean and and, and buttoned up and that that's exactly what Hillary is. But I think you know, she also says yours is kind of a more sophisticated system. I'm a passionate Hillary Clinton supporter. Uh, we can go into that at length in future episodes if necessary. I just want to go on the record and say that. So uh, um, volunteering to uh, help with the graphic design was a real point of pride for me and something I took on very seriously. But it raises this funny question about, you know, um, is design an inherently inauthentic operation? You know, if you're designing something, um, are you inherently imposing rules, imposing a sensibility, imposing structure where uh, th th that very imposition kind of creates an aura of inauthenticity to it? And essentially, I've, I've done lots of design projects over the years where the goal was authenticity, and the question was, how do you actually, um, how do you build it in? And I will say, in terms of the work for the campaign, the one thing that I wanted from the very beginning, and, and I think it was shared by people um, at the campaign, was a logo so simple that, you know, a four-year-old could make it out of construction paper. You know, no compound curves, you didn't have to have uh, um, software to do it. Watching those basic shapes be, you know, retrofitted with photographs and rainbows and all kinds of different things. It's really, it's really a very playful uh, system that is still quite recognizable as what it is. My most treasured collection of the application of those logos are kids who have made their own signs with crayons and with construction paper holding it up. They're just beautiful. Oh, I, I mean, like, I'm like, uh, my five-year-old could have designed that? Hell yeah. Yeah, thank you. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's episode, including Michael's new essay on talking about logos and Lindsay Ballant's article on the authenticity gap. Um, between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. 
Our thanks to Memo Bottle for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. 